0: Well, we got some very talented, gifted people, and uh, we're so grateful uh, for people using their gifts. As we're going to mention in a little bit, it's not all about the gifts, but when people do use their gifts, it is a sign that uh, they are taking seriously what it is that God has given to them and out of love using that for other people. And so I do appreciate it when our praise team practices so hard and then they come on Sunday morning to share with you their gifts. Uh, because it is and can be a real act of love. And so I, I really appreciate what John does. Which, by the way, yesterday was his 41st birthday. And, uh, yeah, so happy birthday to John. And then uh, Wyatt, I guess, his birthday is today, which is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And uh, Wyatt has a gift of drumming, which is... I'm so glad my kid didn't have that gift, but I think it's fantastic that he does. Uh, It's great being around the kids. i tell you, we had like about 180 students at Vacation Bible School, and um, I wasn't near as involved as I would have liked to have been, but I saw we had like 80-something adult sponsors and kids that had come to uh, just serve the church all week long, which was fantastic. And Beth is such a a motherly presence Uh, every Every uh, morning, Monday through Friday, she'd be up here for, I guess, about half an hour talking to the kids and doing an opening, opening assembly. And as part of, uh, it, was just, it, was just so, it was just so neat just to see everybody using their gifts and shining through their gifts and all the rest. I, I really do appreciate that. And I have to tell you, too, I appreciate Mark and all that he's doing with our youth, too. Uh, I got to see him uh, front row seat to the Action at our youth camp, and I tell you what, Mark handles not just the kids, but the adults and all of the difficult situations he's put in, handles them really, really well, and I appreciate that. But it was fun being with Mark a couple of weeks ago at youth camp, uh, because at youth camp, among other things, as somebody who's a little bit older, I get to be reminded of just how wonderful it is uh, to be young and, uh, you know, in love, that kind of thing. Because at camp, although it's all about agape... When you're at that stage of life and it's the summer and boys and girls are around each other, you know, all week long, there's love in the air and it's not just agape, it's the hey baby kind of eros sort of, <laughs> sort of love. And it's kind of neat and just in case you're, you're wondering, no, there's no public display of affection and all the rest and we try to keep their eyes on Jesus and all the rest. But, you know, we have fun with it too. And so uh, there was this opportunity at camp where uh, the camp pastor, camp director, uh, asked some young men to get up on stage and share their favorite their favorite pickup lines and uh, which was kind of entertaining you know um, the one that won here 's the, the line of the person that won i uh, the reason i 'm always behind you is because mama told me to always follow my dream <laughs> yeah, I know i know i I'm, I was like oh in the first service i got oh you know it 's like totally different response. Uh, we had a couple of young men that were on stage, very brave, very brave young men who were going to share their favorite pickup lines. And, and, uh, and one of them, right here, Michael, why don't you lift your hand? This is, this is great. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. No, really, I, I like this one. Here, here was his pickup line. Imagine this is the, the prospect over here. Here's Michael's line. If you're a pirate Okay, now already he's lost me. But okay. If you were a pirate, would you wear your parrot here or here? <laughs> and I and I'm think, and I'm thinking, oh Michael, you're never gonna get married. Um, <laughs> but, but do we uh, there was another no no. No, seriously, Michael's cool. He's he's really he's a lot of fun, he's a cool kid. Uh, you know, really. Brad and Ann should be very proud. Except for that, uh, but then we had another, we had another young man with our group, and uh, he his pickup line here it is no no kidding here was his pickup line ladies I play the I play the guitar <laughs> like that's it I play the guitar and no kidding this kid would carry his guitar around camp. All day, every day. Is that not the truth? And he can't even play it. I am not kidding. It was so, it was so funny. Yeah. And so there was all these pickup lines. And it was, it was fun. It was comical. And, and God's created all these wonderful loves. It's just that they need to be healthy and all the rest. And so we had fun with that. But it was nice being there with love in the air. And I was just reminded, though, if there's not something greater if there's not another love to sustain all these wonderful loves, including eros, well, they just kind of disappear. They're short-term. You can fall out of like just as quickly as you can fall into like. And so I remember that when I was younger, too. I used to have these my-girlfriend-told-me jokes, and one of them was my-girlfriend-told-me that she was leaving me because I never listened to her or something like that. Uh, my, My girlfriend told me she's leaving me because I couldn't handle my OCD. So as she was leaving, I told her to be sure to shut the door behind her five times. Uh, You know, you you fall in like, and you fall out of like, and that happens with all the loves, whether we're talking about storge, which is the instinctual, natural love, or phileo, which is the neighbor love, or the eros, which is, hey, baby, uh, you know, I like you a lot kind of a love. If you don't have another love, those loves don't typically last, or at least they're not everything they need to be. They need something more. Uh, we need something more, and that something more is the agape love of God. It's the agape that never fails, that always sustains, that always cleanses and renews and strengthens these wonderful God-given loves that actually make the world go round. The, the, the sad thing is, though, in Corinth, the people had forgotten about agape, and Paul has to take some time to remind them of the wonder and the significance and the glory of this amazing uniquely God like event love. So that brings us back to where we were last week. We're gonna go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text this morning is first Corinthians chapter twelve, verse thirty one, all the way through chapter thirteen, verse eight. And now I will show you the more the most excellent way If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. May God bless Reema's Word. You may be seated. Now, this is such a a, a great text, and we're going to take some time going through this text, and you're going to think we're taking too much time on this, but I don't really think so. We're probably going to spend the next five or six weeks in this one chapter. And the reason we're going to spend some time in this is because it is so incredibly relevant. I think 1 Corinthians 13 is quite a contemporary passage for at least a couple of reasons. And the first reason is this. We still, some 2,000 years later, have this tendency to lose our first love. Paul says, Let me just show you the most excellent way. Why does he have to show them this better way? Because they've lost their way. They've either lost the way or they've forsaken the way or they've minimized the way. But in some respect or another, they've lost their way. And they had the way in the beginning. I mean, every church is born in love. When the Apostle Paul was there helping this church to get started... Of course, he was preaching the love of God, the event love of God made known in the sending of the Son Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many. That church was born in love, like every church is born in love, but they forgot or forsook or minimized their first love. And so Paul's saying, I've got to remind you of this simple stuff. And as a consequence of the forgetting their first love, the church is falling apart. That's what Paul is largely dealing with in the whole of 1 Corinthians, this disunity. Disunity always happens when people lose their first love. So this is really important for us to get. There's another reason, though, that I think 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is so contemporary or so relevant to us, and that is that the uh, culture in Corinth was very similar to the greater American culture here in the 21st century. And all I have to do is tell you a little bit about Corinth, and you're going to see the connections... Are obvious. So let me just give you the simple story of Corinth. Corinth is this this town, this city that is located right smack dab in the middle of a four mile wide isthmus. And to the north of Corinth were all the northern provinces of Greece, and to the south were the southern provinces of Greece. And if anybody wanted to get from the north to the south, or south to the north, they had to go through Corinth. It was the only land bridge between those two regions of Greece. So all of the highways that ran north and south, they ran through Corinth. So it was a busy place. There was a lot of commerce going on there. And those of you in real estate, you know, if you're thinking about business and you're thinking about real estate, what are your primary considerations? Location, location, location. It was bustling. But there's more. Because if anybody wanted to go from east to west or west to east by ship, they could go to Corinth take the cargo off their ships and then transport it across that four-mile piece of land and load the cargo on another ship. Or they could travel hundreds of miles around the south. But it wasn't just the distance. It was the treacherous nature of the trip around the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And so nobody wanted to do that. So consequently, if you were a merchant in Italy going to Asia or Asia going to Italy, you went through Corinth. Corinth was almost like the Panama Canal, only without the canal, okay? So Corinth controlled the land to the north, the land to the south, the Aegean Sea to the east, the Ionian Sea to the west. Location, location, location. Business was booming. It was a a very industrious city. Here's where things get even more interesting. Because of its location, not only was commerce king, but sports was essentially queen because it became the location of the, Ist- the Isthmian Games, which was essentially this athletic contest that happened every other year, second only to the Olympics in terms of its importance to the Greco-Roman world. In fact, the highest office in town was not city manager or mayor or anything like that. It was sponsor of the Games. Location, location, location. Business is booming, Forts are worshipped. Here's where it gets even more interesting. In 146 BC, the town was basically demolished by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was rising. Corinth was in rebellion, and so Rome basically destroyed the city and for the next 100 years. It didn't exist. There was nothing there, no native population. In 44 B.C., along comes Julius Caesar, and he knows a good thing when he sees it and says, I'm going to put a Roman garrison there that's going to become a colony, It's going to become a city, because that's going to make some money for the Roman Empire, and everybody's going to want to go there. And sure enough, that's what happened. In a matter of just a few years, it was busting at the seams. Before Christ comes along, the Isthmian Games are reinstituted and, and everybody is enjoying this city that is hustling and bustling and has no aristocracy. It has no real tradition. It's completely multi ethnic, multicultural. So, everybody who comes to Corinth is coming for one particular reason it's to make it, to have success. What people valued in that city as much or more than any other city was making it happen or having what was necessary so as to make it happen. Power. Power to make things happen. Power to move the masses. That's what Corinth was all about. Does that remind you of anywhere? Right here. I think if there's any letter that just naturally intersects with America, it's First Corinthians. And so the people, of course, were infatuated with all sorts of power. They were infatuated with the miraculous The ability to do the the extraordinary. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. They were infatuated with knowledge and persuasion because knowledge is power in moving the masses. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. They were infatuated with the ability to do whatever it took to move what was ever in your way, if I have the faith, to move mountains. They were also infatuated with just the ability to make the crowds... Go, wow, because of the spectacular or the extraordinary or the the over-the-top, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames. Paul is dealing with a crowd of people that is very into power. The power to make things happen. The power to get what you need so as to make things happen. And Paul calls them on their power tripping. And he says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. It's not just a better way, it's the most excellent way, and it's a way that runs contrary to how their culture as a whole would run, and that is, I'm going to show you the way of love. And the way of love is way different than the way of power. Then Paul says some amazing things in here that I want us to just soak on for a a little bit. And the thing I want us to soak on for a while this morning is quite simply, is Paul serious when he says, you can have all these gifts and display all this power, and still be a spiritual nothing? Is Paul serious when he says that you can have these extraordinary abilities, this tremendous blessing, actually be a blessing to other people, have gifts, even miraculous gifts, and still not really be a Christian? Is he serious about this? Or is that just poetic flourish? Well, I think he has to be taken seriously. And let me tell you why. Consistently in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, especially with regards to the teachings of Jesus, it all comes down to what's going on in your heart. It doesn't come down to your gifts with regards to determining your standing or lack thereof with regards to a relationship with God. It's by your fruit that you're recognized. Over in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells this, little story of the the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the chaff. And he says they both look alike until one bears the fruit, the grain. It's the wheat. Other than the bearing of the fruit, other than the producing of the fruit, there's no apparent difference between the two. It's by their fruit that you recognize the wheat, not by other appearances. There's lots of reasons in the Bible that we that we have that would suggest that when Paul says in verses 1 through 3, you may have this gift and that gift and this ability and do this spectacular thing, but you're a spiritual nothing. We have lots of reason to suggest to us that when Paul writes all that, we need to take it at face value. Kind of interesting, specifically over toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says something kind of interesting that parallels what Paul says. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says, he's going to tell them, I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. I never knew you. You're spiritual... Spiritually, you're zero. You did spectacular things, but am I supposed to know you? No, don't think so. You go to the Old Testament, and there's lots of stories of people doing the extraordinary, even people doing the extraordinary, by the power of God, who have not given their heart and their life to God. Balaam is a great example. You go to Numbers chapter, the, the book of Numbers, the Old Testament, there's this running story with regards to Balaam and Balaam is this person who tries very hard to do the wrong thing in the New Testament he's described as a wicked man three times and yet in spite of his wickedness in spite of his opposition to God God gives him revelation and uses this man who's set against God essentially as a prophet he doesn't have any relationship with God not in a positive sense in a negative sense he does you go to King Saul you say, well he's a king, yeah he's a king And God's Holy Spirit comes on him and he prophesies. And God uses Saul as a prophet, but we don't really see much evidence that Saul gave his heart and his life to God. We could come up with some other examples, but you go to the New Testament, there are plenty of examples there of people doing extraordinary things, actually miraculous things, and they hadn't given their heart or their life to God. Probably one of the better examples is that of Judas. Let's look at this. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus gave them this authority. And then they go and exercise this authority. And later on, Jesus talks about how they would not only heal the sick, but raise the dead, preach the coming of the kingdom of God, and and heal even the lepers. Jesus gave them this authority. Now, in case you're wondering who is the them in verses 2 through 4, it's real plain who the them is because every single one of the 12 are named by name in this list. And then after the 11 are named, specifically at the end of verse 4, it says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus gave the 12, including Judas, the authority to proclaim the kingdom, to, to drive out demons, To perform all kinds of miracles. It wasn't Satan who enabled Judas to do this. It was Jesus. Now, recognizing that God grants gifts and ability and blessing to everybody can be a real sobering thought. And here's why it's so sobering. The exercise of the gifts and the various contributions to good or even godly purposes is not the telltale sign that a person's inherent nature has changed. An ability, a blessing, an empowerment, even a supernatural ability does not require heart change. Growing in love requires the heart change that comes from having received the love of God. You can't grow in love apart from having received the event of God's love, but you can perform all kinds of extraordinary things and do good things simply by the virtue of the fact that God has blessed you apart from having a relationship with Him. On your behalf. God blesses all kinds of people. In all sorts of ways. All the time. That's not just what we get from observing culture as a whole. This is really what the scripture teaches. I'm very glad that the scripture teaches. That God blesses all sorts of people. In all sorts of ways. Uh, Jesus. I'm glad that Jesus. Says your heavenly father. Causes the sun to rise. On the evil and the good. And sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He blesses everybody in all manner of ways. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. He says, when it comes to spiritual gifts, gifts are external to the person. Gifts are like jewelry or clothing that adorns the body, but they don't fundamentally change the nature or the shape of the body just because you put on makeup or jewelry or clothes. Your clothes and jewelry could fit onto somebody else. It doesn't change you. Exercise and eating right is what changes your changes your body physically. What changes you spiritually is receiving the love of God into your life. That's what fundamentally changes the soul. But even if your soul is not changed, God can still bless you with certain abilities and talents and even supernatural gifts. And we see that exemplified in several scriptures in the Bible. So I, for one, am very glad that God blesses all sorts of people in all sorts of ways with all sorts of gifts all of the time. I'm very glad of this. And just because God blesses us with all sorts of gifts all the time in all sorts of ways, that doesn't mean that we can't give God the glory for those gifts and those blessings. Even if those blessings are brought to people through some sort of common grace. That doesn't mean we don't give God glory. James gives God glory. He says this, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. We can give God glory for the gifts that other people have, even if they're not in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God's just that good. And He's not just good to them. He's good to them and He's good to us through being good to them. I, for one, am very glad that God blesses all sorts of people because through God blessing them, I get blessed too, and so do you. Imagine how terrible this world would be if God only blessed the produce that was grown by Christian farmers. You know what would happen if only Christian fruits and vegetables were blessed? You'd go to H-E-B and there would be the the non-organic and the organic fruits and vegetables. Then there would be another section of the Christian organic and Christian non-organic fruits and vegetables. Prices would go up because nobody would buy the unsanctified stuff. Now, I'm kind of pressing, but it, and people would rip you off in restaurants. you go to 600 degrees and you buy this, you know... Cheese and onion and mushroom pizza. But you'd order it from the sanctified side of the menu, which is much more expensive. They bring it out. The cheese is kind of crusty. The tomato sauce looks terrible. And it looks like the mushrooms and onions have been grown in your grandfather's closet down in the basement. I mean, you, you know they brought you the wrong pizza. So you know what you say? You say, take it back. That is an agnostic pizza at best. This pizza needs Jesus. Okay, now okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating. This is all absolutely thoroughly absurd, but here's the point. The point is we should all be very glad that God blesses people, all sorts of people, period. That God gives all kinds of gifts because not only do they get to benefit from the gifts, but everybody around them gets to benefit from the gifts. If it weren't for God gifting all sorts of people in all sorts of ways and blessing them and empowering them, this world would not be livable. Imagine if the only people who could ever help you would be Christian cops and Christian doctors and Chris, Christian nurses and Christian CPS agents. We couldn't live in a world like this. I'm glad for the common grace of God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't deserve the glory for all of the good things that He does. It just means that I can't judge my relationship or lack thereof on the basis of God being extraordinarily good to me or through me in terms of giftedness. Because God gifts Everybody. In fact, in the previous chapter, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul is talking about the gifts, he's saying the gifts that that you get from God, they're grace gifts. It's by His grace that He's given you a gift. And what that means is if you have a gift, you can't say, Woo, look at me. Yeah. No, you're turning the gift into a compensation. God didn't give you the gift because you deserved it. He gave you the gift because He's gracious It says something about the graciousness of God, not about the wonderfulness of the recipient. And that's why Paul is so upset with the Corinthians by doing this one-upmanship thing on one another. Well, I've got this gift and I've got this gift. They're attaching their gifts to their value or their worth or their closeness to God. And Paul is saying that has nothing to do with anything. It's just a gift that God gave you. And when He gave it to you, it wasn't for your benefit. It was for the benefit of other people. That's the way God rolls. And so for you to take pride in a gift is absolutely ridiculous. At the moment you take pride in a gift, let me read this the way I put it on the on the screen. Taking pride in a grace gift is the exact opposite of the worship God wants because it's a fundamental denial of God's unfailing love. That's why Paul is all over the Corinthians as worshiping like pagans, that their worship sounds like clanging gongs and clanging cymbals because... They're worshiping like pagans. They're taking pride in their gifts. They're not, they're not even paying attention to what's going on beneath the surface of things. They've become pagan in their mindset toward God. And they've taken pride in these grace gifts that God has given to them, not recognizing that that's just jewelry, that's just clothes. You want to know how you're doing? You've got to press beneath the surface of things and look at the love. That's what Paul is encouraging them to do. Press beneath the surface And Look at what's really going on in your heart. And this is why this is so sobering to us, because we'd rather stay on the surface of things. There's a tendency in you and in me, natural tendency, to look at what am I doing and how are things going for me or for us. Are people coming up to you and saying, well, you just blessed me, you just helped me, thank you so much. And we just look at how God is working through us and around us, and we just want to go. Well, I guess everything's wonderful because I'm using my gift. And people said that song blessed me, or that sermon blessed me, or thank you so much for using that gift. And we appreciate the appreciation. But if we somehow transfer that over to, well, I guess things are good between me and God, we're making a mistake. People can be fooled by what's on the surface of things. Just uh, just this last week, uh, I, I mentioned Beth is on stage every. Every morning, doing the opening assembly. And as part of the routine, as part of the shtick, uh, this character would come up on stage named Irving. I think we've got a picture of, of Irving. And Irving was this goofy character, and the, the kids loved Irving. Irving made me uncomfortable. But the kids loved Irving. Well, after I think it was, I think the first day, Fallon, who's almost seven, got baptized a few weeks ago. Da- Robin's daughter. She tells Robin, Robin, you know, Mom, there's this guy at Vacation Bible School looked just like Mark. <laughs> Only it wasn't Mark. It was his, his name was Irving. And he had a funny voice and he wore glasses, although I don't think they were real glasses because there were no lenses. But it, he looked so much like Mark, but it wasn't Mark because his name was Irving and he wore glasses. Now, the rest of us, we think that's, you know, that's cute and charming. But most of us rather quickly go, now, how many six foot four, 300-pound guys with a gnarly beard that look just like Mark live in Georgetown? I mean, we see through the surface of things, okay? It's kind of funny when other people are fooled for a little while. But here, here's what I want to ask you. What if, and this isn't the case, but what if Mark actually thought he was then it's not so cute then it's really disturbing that's kind of sick and messed up if other people get fooled by the surface of things okay that's one thing but if we deceive ourselves because of the clothing or the jewelry or the makeup wow that's kind of messed up that's Pretty creepy, actually. And that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. The people were buying what they were selling. They were just looking at the surface of things. And they weren't pressing beneath to look at their hearts. And Paul is saying, you guys may have all that stuff, but if you don't have love, it's a resounding gong. It's a clanging cymbal. You are nothing. You're accomplishing nothing. You're spiritual nothings. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but it is a reminder, a sobering reminder to me and to all of you. I don't care if you're a deacon or a praise team member or a choir member or a pastor or someone else on staff or you're just here all the time helping in all kinds of ways. It's not your gifts. It's the agape. Paul says, here's what you need to be asking. This is implied at the very least. Am I... Patient? Really? Am I kind? Am I being envious or boastful? Well, let's just put your, put your name in there. We'll do this little self-diagnostic. I'm going to use the word Melvin, just because I hate saying blank. If you're a Melvin here, and this is your first time visiting, I'm really not picking on you, okay? But Let's just go through this. Put your name in the blank. Melvin is patient. Melvin is kind. Melvin does not envy. Melvin does not boast. Melvin is not proud. Melvin is not rude. Melvin is not self seeking. Melvin's not easily angered. Melvin keeps no record of wrongs. That is to say, you're not the kind of person that everybody else thinks the world just revolves around you. You're not touchy. Melvin does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Melvin always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, if you say, well, I'm taking a look beneath the surface right now and I'm kind of feeling a little uncomfortable. Well, good. That shows that you're not proud because if you're proud, you can't even do the self-analysis. You're immediately thinking of somebody else. (laughs) So good for you. Thanks for joining the rest of the crowd. Uh, But I also want you to know that if you're looking beneath the surface and you don't necessarily like everything that you see about you, there's probably more than you're seeing. As a pastor, I do get to do some counseling every once in a while. I wish I didn't have to. I I, I appreciate the opportunities, but it's always a little sad when I'm talking to a husband and wife and things are strained. And here's what commonly happens. The wife or the husband starts to see they've got a problem. And the wife will say something like, yeah, I know I'm sort of selfish. Or the guy will say, yeah, I've got an anger issue. And, and they're just, it's on a scale of 1 to 10, to the man, it's like, it's a 3. Yeah, I kind of see you got a problem. I can guarantee you, if you're starting to see something that's true about you that you don't like,
1: everybody
0: else in your family or at work already knows. To the wife, it's a 20. If you're starting to see something's there, I'm just telling you, there's more beneath the surface than you're seeing right now. Um, a week ago, Tuesday, I guess 12 days, 11 days ago now, on a Tuesday, I started using this stuff on my face that my wife was using. Now, my wife is gone. My wife and, and, and Shelby, they're, they're gone on vacation now. They were gone to Fellowship of Christian Athletes Camp, and I just thought, I'm going to use this stuff because Gina had tried this stuff. It's called Admire My Skin. That's the name of the product. Admire My Skin. And she had this little spot, kind of an age spot or something on her cheek, and she was using this, and I didn't even know she was using it until one day I just noticed it looked like it was bruised or something. And I asked her, What's going on? She said, Well, I'm using this stuff, it's taking out this spot. It's okay. And I forgot about it. And then later she told me, I Man, that stuff worked, and she showed me her skin without the makeup on. So I thought, That's, that's cool. So she was gone, and I just see that stuff on the counter, and she's not there, and I just want you to know, when my wife's not around, I don't wear her clothes, okay, I don't, no, I really don't, I don't wear clothes or shoes or makeup or anything like that, but there's like this admire my skin stuff on the counter, and I'm thinking, they work for her, and I've got this little spot on my, on my cheek here, well, yeah, that's later, I had a spot, it must have, I mean, like maybe the size of a pencil eraser, and you could barely see it, and Six days in, it's like this. And it was worse than that the day before. And some of these guys, like John, asked me, what happened to you? And I was like, well, okay, I have to be honest with you. I was up till 3 o'clock in a bar and got in a fight for Jesus. No, that's not really. But it looked terrible. It's like, oh, man, this is the worst. And so I called Jean. I was like, what's going on? She said, oh, yeah, that happened to me too. I was like, really? Yeah, but I wear makeup. You're a guy. You don't get to wear makeup. And so I was like, Really? So I keep applying, and then you know now it looks, looks fine, and the, the spot came out. Of course, my skin came off my face. But at the time, I was just thinking, they should not call this admire my skin. They should call it "bury my face." Because here's the thing. if you've got a spot and you've got to take it out, you never get rid of a spot by pressing it deeper. And usually, if there's a little spot there, there's something a little bit deeper. And then when it starts coming up, you go, "Man, that was an iceberg." You're starting to recognize, you know, maybe I'm not what I thought I was and I'm not as loving as... You know what? There's actually more than what you're glancing at right now. But here's the good news. The good news is if you apply and then you apply and you apply some more, God will take care of it. This is the interesting thing about the light of God. The light of God makes us uncomfortable because we see what we didn't see before, and yet at the same time, it's the light that brings the life. His love will make you feel a little exposed and uncomfortable. But God never shows us something that he doesn't simultaneously want to heal. When you go down this path with God and you're honest and you admit, I've got need, you have to also be prepared for the reality that there's probably more there than what you're seeing. But that's okay because God already sees it. And by his love, he wants to heal it. You just have to apply and reapply and reapply. That's the promise of His love. He knows where He's taking you. Otherwise, He wouldn't expose this to you in the first place. Because that would just be kind of rude. Here's the paradox in all of this. And it's a paradox that we come to every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. When you come to the Lord's Supper, you recognize, I have need. I obviously have need because Jesus had to die on the cross for my sin. My sin was that bad that this is the only solution that would do. That's bad. And yet, not only is that what I needed, but he actually did what I needed. So that's great. The good news and the bad news coalesce perfectly at the cross of Jesus Christ. And whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, which we do every month, there is this reminder that I draw most near to God at the very point where I recognize I'm least like him. But when I recognize those points where I'm least like him, that's where his love comes flooding past the surface and taking care of the wounds and healing me. So if you take a good, hard look at agape love in First Corinthians 13 and it makes you feel uncomfortable, okay, join the rest of us. But here's the good news. If you kind of on occasion feel like you're spiritual nothing, like you got a long way to go, well, guess what? God specializes in making something out of nothing. God created this whole great, beautiful, majestic universe out of nothing. So you remain a nothing before God and He will make something extraordinary out of you. But it will never happen in your life if you don't start by admitting the need and then receiving deeply and consistently what it is that He supplies His love that never fails. Let's bow for a moment of a moment of prayer. Father, we we just say thank you so much for giving us what we need. Lord, you see darkness in us in ways that we can't see it at the moment. But when your love comes in, it exposes but it's a good thing. Because we know there's a promise in Scripture that He who began a good work in us will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You're going to finish what you started. We can't just start a regimen and, ha- and stop halfway. You don't go into surgery and then once you've been cut open, they say, well, let's stop it here. You've got to follow through. And you follow through. But you're kind. You're, you're, patient. you're a patient and kind healer. We should not be afraid to expose our sins and our weaknesses to you. You're not easily angered. You keep no record of wrongs. We don't need protection from you. You're the one who protects. You trust that the good work that you've begun in us, you will carry it out to completion. You are loving and capable of doing that. And you have the end in mind. Your hope is secure. It's right. We should have a hope similar to yours. We can trust you with our hearts, with our need, with our lives, with our confession. You carry out the work to completion. You persevere. Your love never fails. And for us to never even admit the need or see the need is to call into question Your great love. If we knew of Your love, we would receive Your love and we would open our hearts to it. May we do that. May we be convinced. And in this moment, as we come to the table, as we remember the event of Your love, may we trust it. We humble ourselves before You. May the depth of our need encounter the height of Your provision. And may we be changed by Your love. Help us, Lord, of course, to press beneath the surface of things, even the good things that we do, or even the gifts that we use. Lord, we thank You for those things. But may we not be fools deceiving ourselves because of the grace gifts that you've given to us. Help us to look intently into our hearts and help us to look intently into yours. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite our deacons forward for the time of communion observance. And if you're relatively new to our fellowship, we want you to know that you do not have to be a member of this local body of believers. It doesn't matter your denominational affiliation or lack thereof. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, we acknowledge that we're all one body together under the one head who is Jesus. And so we really do encourage you to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning with us. Uh, But just a practical note of advice here. When the cup comes to you, there's a cup and a wafer together. There's actually two cups. You just pull them apart. There's a wafer in one. There's the juice in the other symbolizing the body of Christ and his shed blood. The wafers are also completely gluten-free. And so I know for some people, even celiacs in particular, that's an issue. You do not need to worry about that. They're they're gluten-free because we do want you to uh, worship along with us in this moment. So for now, let's go ahead and bow for a silent moment of meditation and confession that we might partake in a manner that is truly worshipful. And right. Father, thank you for the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. Thank you, Lord, for having a plan for our lives, a plan to heal us and to make us new. Or we are are, are so glad that you're the kind of God that a, a bruised reed you will not break. You you see our our woundedness, our bruisedness, and and still, you, you accept us, you love us. In fact, you see the depth of our need greater than we do, and that's why you embrace us. You see how hurt we are, how damaged. You see this wasn't your plan. You see our loves spinning out of control, and you want us to be like your son. Not just knowing life, but knowing it, having it in abundance for all eternity. That's your plan. But we'll never walk in Your plan apart from receiving Your incredible love. And so today, Father, as we remember the gift of Your Son, we pray that in a fresh way we will acknowledge our tremendous need for His body that was broken, His blood that was shed. May His body and His blood sustain us, heal us, and empower us for service. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.